You are listening to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, with your host, Randy Sutton. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement on the America Out Loud Network. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, 34-year police veteran and author of A Cop's Life. We've got a great show for you lined up today. And uh, without further ado, let's take a walk into the briefing room where I'm going to give you my view from the blue. I think it's important that we talk about what's going on in Rochester concerning that in-custody death. There's a lot of misinformation that's being, uh, that's being put out there. And, you know, people are rushing to judgment based on, once again, uh, information that is, uh, you know, coming out in dribs and drabs. But there's a lot of fallout from this. So let's talk about what actually happened. So Rochester police. Now, this incident actually happened in March, but apparently uh, it was not made public until just recently. And as a result of that, there's been charges of cover-up. Now, apparently, the police did notify the mayor and the, and said that it was uh, basically a drug-related death, as it was. But there was, unfortunately, because of the um, uh, what took place during the arrest, that this was classified as a homicide by the coroner. Now, let's, let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about what happened first. So, an individual named uh, uh, Prude is, um, is, is high as hell on PCP. He's also got mental health issues. He's suicidal. Um, he, uh, he comes down to Rochester to visit his brother. He is acting crazy. He's uh, uh, talking about committing suicide. And the brother calls the police um, and oh, before he calls the police, he takes him into the hospital to be treated because of his mental condition. So the hospital does what hospitals seem to always do when it comes down to mental health issues. They, uh, they release him after a couple of hours because they don't want to deal with him. Now, of course, if they had done what they were supposed to do, then they would have had a, uh, a physician um, not only do a, a physical exam, but also uh, determine if he was a danger to himself or others. Now, remember, he'd already, he'd already said he was going to kill himself, and he was showing signs of, of uh, suicidal tendencies. But this happens all the time. They just released him. So he goes back to his brother's. Now, somehow, he gets hold of PCP. He's high as hell, and, uh, and his brother calls the police when he, when he runs out of the house. Now, he is discovered in, in the street, sitting in the street. It's March. It's cold in Rochester, and he's naked. Now, why is that an important um, part of this discussion? Well, the reason is when... People who are um, suffering some mental issues and also take drugs, there is often a, uh, a physical um, uh, 
type of uh, activity that takes place where their body temperature rises to a level that can actually be fatal. And so very often, especially with PCP, they take their clothes off. Well, the officers get there, they see this, and, and it's not an uncommon occurrence because you recognize this after being on the street. So he's acting bizarrely. He, he, first, he, he's cooperative. They let, he lets him handcuff him. And then he starts spitting. So they take what's called a spit hood, and they put it over his head. Now, a spit hood is, generally speaking, all that I have seen, and, and, and I have utilized them on occasion, um, is a mesh hood, which just doesn't allow people to spit on you. And, I mean, listen, you don't get paid enough to be a cop to allow people to spit on you, okay? Especially in the days, the age of COVID. So they, 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 were, they were very much within their right to do so. They put him down on the ground. He was only there for a couple minutes. And then he started showing distress. So they called for an ambulance. Um, they, uh, they, they gave him uh, drugs when, uh, the, you know, the life-saving drugs. He uh, restored his breathing. And then a week later, he died. And um, they said that the cause of death was, amongst other things, asphyxiation. There is some talk that he vomited while uh, on the ground. And he may have aspirated that, which caused that. Uh, but because it was involved during an arrest and there was the activity of law enforcement involved with restraining him, this was ruled a homicide. And that's not necessarily, uh, you know, that, that's a homicide is not murder. A homicide is just the death of one human being um, that, uh, at the hands of another human being. So this is ruled a homicide. Now, suddenly... Months later, this becomes an issue when the uh, body cam or the dash cam is released. Um, it doesn't appear to show the officers acting brutal. It doesn't appear to show them doing anything wrong. But because he died and he's a, a black man and, and the cops were white, suddenly Rochester is on fire. The police chief and the deputy chief are both 20-year uh, and 30-year veterans. They are being accused of cover-ups and of, of you know, being accomplices to his murder and everything else. And they did something that uh, I, I, I was kind of surprised about. They just said, uh, we quit. We retire. Adios. Goodbye. Now, so now the leadership of the department is gone. And... Um, and and the mayor comes up with it with this comment after she after she takes the what's called the crisis intervention team away from the police department and gives it to parks and recreation. I don't I, I don't understand that decision, but here's how she's rationalizing it. This is the mayor. We had a human being in need of help, in need of compassion. In that moment, we had an opportunity to protect him to keep him warm, to bring him to safety, to begin the process of healing him and lifting him up. Wow. So, based on everything that this sus suspect did, including to himself, when he purposefully ingested one of the most dangerous drugs known to man, PCP, um, it's the police who failed him by not lifting him up. 
uh, you know, once again, this is another, this needs to be completely investigated. Uh, I saw what the officers did. I saw no brutality. I saw no, uh, no issues with what, uh, what their actions were. Uh, and and this, it's a un, very unfortunate death. It's clearly an accidental death, though. This, isn't, this wasn't caused on purpose. Um, and th- this is just another demonstration of, of how any use of force can turn into a deadly use of force. But the realities of, of how they got here need to be examined and not simply blame slammed onto the police and then giving the uh, the rioters of Black Lives Matter and Antifa and other groups carte blanche to go and attack people in the cities. And that's exactly what has happened once again. So this is this seems to be a repetition uh, that's happening all over the country, including um, we had another one similar in, uh, in, in the results, that is, that, you know, massive unrest and looting and rioting and violence in Minneapolis uh, last week when a murder suspect, male and female uh, murder suspect, shot, a, shot a, another guy, killed him. When police cornered them at a mall, the woman ran, was captured, and the male subject who actually committed the murder, uh, took out a handgun and shot himself in the head and killed himself on video. And lo and behold, who gets blamed for it? Who gets who gets blamed for an, another, another killing of a helpless person at the hands of the police? Of course, the police get blamed for it. And what's the results? Rioting, looting, burning. Until... Until cities wake up and and act in a way to actually protect their citizens, this is going to play out in cities all over America until who knows when. I can't help but believe that there is a political um, uh, page to this. I can't help but think that there is... Uh, there are people that are fanning the flames of this, this type of, of uh, rhetoric in order to push an election. And I find that absolutely disgusting. We're talking about people's lives here. We're talking about the lives of, of law enforcement officers. We're talking about the lives of people who uh, are in, are in uh, need of compassion and empathy. And 99.9% of the time, officers are acting in just that way. It is, a, it is truly unfortunate when a situation like this occurs involving a subject that's got mental health issues and then exacerbates it by their conduct and their, and their drug use. Um, there's never a happy ending to this. But we have to look at it with... Uh, responsible eyes and make a determination about guilt, innocence, and, um, and who's really, who's really put, who's to blame here. And, uh, 
I wish that this could be done in a way that was fair and firm and would be accepted by all. I just wonder if we'll ever get there again. One of the most important things that you can do as either a law enforcement officer or someone who supports law enforcement is to help injured and disabled officers. How? By simply going to this website, www.thewoundedblue.org. Thewoundedblue.org. And why should you do that? Well, first of all, because I founded the organization. Do you need any more than that, really? So this organization provides tremendous assistance and support to officers who've been injured either physically or emotionally in the line of duty. Uh, we have a phenomenal documentary film. If you go to Amazon.com and look at uh, The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. Also on uh, YouTube, if you go to our YouTube channel, Wounded Blue TV, check out our series, The Voices of the Blue. You want to do everything you can to help these men and women who sacrificed so much for their communities. Go to www.thewoundedblue.org. Let's talk about what is going on in America today. On this show, we talk about all things law enforcement from a law enforcement officer's perspective. You know, you may read some of these stories in your local newspapers or see some of these stories on your nightly news, but you will rarely hear these stories from a law enforcement perspective. Um, I read a disturbing um, news headline. I'm going to read it to you. Nine Massachusetts cops charged in overtime fraud scheme. They are alleged to embezzle $200,000 by submitting false timesheets. This is in Boston. I'll tell you why this disturbs me. Because every time a law enforcement officer sullies his or her badge, every law enforcement officer in this country suffers. We have never seen more scrutiny of the American law enforcement officer than we have recently. The um, many shootings that have been uh, uh, captured on videotape have led our country uh, into an uh, abyss of violence. Now, clearly, much of this is um, being uh, foisted upon the law enforcement community and the American people by politics and by a movement that, that uh, clearly um, is an anti-law enforcement movement. But when you read a headline like this or some other um, form of corruption or, um, or, or some other type of misconduct, it paints the law enforcement officer in a, in a manner in which every single cop has to, has to pay the price. You know, corruption is a, is a, is a tough word. Um, Let's discuss it for a moment. What is corruption? It's the misuse of public power for private benefit. And very often it is associated with money. Um, uh, to actually read this headline um, about being charged in an overtime fraud screen, 
scheme actually happens much more often than you hear about because uh, it's not a big sexy crime. But it is, however, stealing. And when a law enforcement officer takes the trust that's been given in into him or her and abuses that public trust, it tears at the very fabric of what this nation needs so much, and that is to believe in their police. It's difficult enough now for all cops, given the current environment that is facing American law enforcement. But when you, when you, as a as a law enforcement officer, purposefully conduct yourself in such a way that um, you can be charged criminally or be uh, terminated because of your behavior, and you purposefully do that, um, what you do is undermine every single one of the men and women in this country who are wearing a badge. So when I read um, uh, a, a story like this, it hurts my heart. And the reality is that 99% of law enforcement officers conduct their, their uh, lives and their careers in honorable ways. In fact, I've got to tell you, I spent 34 years as a cop. Um, one of the reasons that I chose that career and I stayed in it for so long was because of the incredible amount of honorable men and women that I served with. Um, I saw constant acts of courage and compassion and empathy and honor, and I was proud to work among them. But when I hear of, of someone who takes that, that um, great honor that's given to them to serve and then abuses it, it makes me angry and it makes me... Um, uh, very frustrated because I know the effect that it's having on all cops. You know, there's a saying out there that um, the people who hate dirty cops more than anything are the other cops, and that's true. So um, I wanted to bring this to your attention because most of the time during this time that we spend together, uh, I'm talking about outside influences. Um, this is something that um, I can't ignore, that I owe you, the viewer of this program, uh, to be completely um, honest and forthright with you when it comes down to all matters that affect law enforcement. And corruption and misconduct consistently uh, needs to be addressed and needs to be dealt with. and. One of the things that I think really um, are very mis is very misunderstood by the American public is how many law enforcement officers, uh, when they do screw up and they do make mistakes of the mind, nobody wants someone working with them or for them in a police agency whose integrity is not above reproach. So um, I wanted to just bring this to your attention and let you know that uh, 
on this show, you'll get the truth, even if it hurts. Uh, one thing that we have talked about uh, ad nauseum, it seems, in the last few months is Portland, Oregon. And I, I, I have to shake my head every time another, another topic comes out about Portland because it is absolutely bizarre. Um, Portland is now burned for all, I think, 100 nights straight. Every single night, there is rioting and looting and arson and burning. And the mayor, Ted Wheeler, who was also the police commissioner in some bizarre universe, um, absolutely refuses to do anything about it. He, is, he has absolutely um, stopped the Portland Police Bureau from doing any um, anything to quell the violence, which has led to deaths, uh, it's led to murders, it's led to billions of dollars in damage to the city and to private property. It has destroyed businesses, and yet not only does he not only does he not do anything to curtail it, he actually empowers these rioters by uh, appearing with them and, and standing in line with them and giving them motivation to continue and curtailing law enforcement's response. Well, you know what's interesting? Things got a little, things got a little close to home for the Portland mayor. Um, he now says, well, let me put it this way. There were two headlines that came out like one or two days from each other. Here's the first one. Portland rioters start firing, start fires outside mayor's home and set fire to occupied building. So this is their, this is their MO. This is their modus operandi uh, all throughout Portland. But now it happened to the mayor's building. So here's the headline that came out today. Portland mayor says he's moving after rioters repeatedly target building where he lives. Hmm, how does it feel, Mr. Mayor? How does it feel to uh, find that um, the worms are turning and they're turning right to you, even though you've been feeding them and empowering them and emboldening them, and now they're coming after you. Um, it's there. It's it's. I don't know. I find a certain irony there. Um, I don't think I'm going to be. I don't think I'm going to be sympathizing uh, too much with uh, with Mayor Wheeler. Um, he's. I mean, after all, he's only. He, he's got his condo that he paid one hundred forty thousand dollars for. Is, uh, is no longer a safe place for him. They're, oh, you know what, just hit me. They're messing with his safe space. Oh, I'm bleeding for you, Mr. Mayor. And while we're on the topic of Portland, not only is the mayor's blithering incompetence uh, uh, on, uh, on display literally every single day, but the Oregon governor 
is just as bad. She is, uh, she's living in a dream world. She refuses, absolutely refuses to call out the National Guard. Um, in fact, for, for a long period of time, she didn't even acknowledge that rioting was taking place in Portland. So now that we're at a, about 100 days and the people who live there are just disgusted, um, hopefully they'll vote her out of office when she comes up, but she's feeling the pressure. So she came up with her own plan, and her own plan was to, was to supplement the Portland Police Department with um, a, members of adjoining agencies. There's two uh, larger sheriff's uh, agencies up there and also another police department. So she created a plan to bring in support officers. Now what's interesting is in just another display of her not only arrogance but ignorance, um, she just happened to fail to talk over these plans with the agencies that she was going to commit into the combat zone that is now Portland. So she makes this announcement that she's going to send in, that she's going to send in these other other uh, uh, officers. Um, but this this headline will say it all. Oregon sheriffs refused to comply with governor's call to send deputies to Portland. Yep, they just said, you know what? We're not going. And it's not that they're not going because they don't want to aid their fellow officers. Farthest thing from the truth. They're saying they're not going because of the governor and the mayor's policies. That's why they're not going. The, uh, and, and the district attorney, uh, the Multoma um, County District Attorney Schmidt, is so deep in bed with Antifa that they call him Daddy. Daddy Schmidt because he is so, uh, uh, he's, he's such a great benefactor of them. So he has refused to prosecute rioters. He basically lets them out. And uh, now what happens as a result of that? Um, the same people that were rioting last night are rioting again tonight because the district attorney refuses to prosecute them. So the uh, sheriff's departments and the other police departments have said no to the goofy governor of, uh, of Oregon, and, um, and who can blame them? And meanwhile, who suffers? The people of the city and the people of the Portland Police Department. Absolutely astounding. And, uh, and the saga continues unabated even now. I know we were a little disappointed because we've had to push back the Brothers in Blue Bash for a few months because of the COVID insanity. Now, on October 17th, we are still going to have a virtual Brothers in Blue Bash, kind of like a tease, and we're going to uh, raise some money. We're going to have some tremendous auction items. So uh, uh, stay listening, 
to uh, this and go to the Facebook page, Brothers in Blue Bash Las Vegas, and get the information there. Now, March 27th, that is a Saturday night here in Las Vegas. The Brothers in Blue Bash, which is going to be the largest celebration of law enforcement, unity, and pride to benefit the Wounded Blue. It's going to be right here in Las Vegas. Got some tremendous, tremendous entertainment lined up for you. There's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a, an event to remember. Fantastic hotel room uh, prices at the Orleans. Just go to the Brothers in Blue Bash uh, Facebook page, and you can uh, make your um, make your reservations there. You can get a table, you can get seats, you can sponsor all kinds of things. Check it out. Facebook page, Brothers in Blue Bash, Las Vegas. I don't know about you, but if you love coffee, you're going to love Law Dog Coffee. Law Dog Coffee Company. Yes, indeedy. This is amazing coffee. It's been uh, in the family of uh, uh, brewers for 90 years, but this particular brand is, is uh, created just for us. So if you love coffee, you're going to love Law Dog Coffee, especially because not only is it phenomenal coffee, it's, it's uh, uh, roasted in a, in a family-owned roasting company. It's been around for 90 years, and it is delicious, but it also goes to help the, uh, the company, Law Dog Coffee Company, gives a percentage of its income to thewoundedblue.org. In fact, they sponsor the Canine Companion Program for the Wounded Blue. So go to lawdogcoffee.com. It gets delivered directly to your house. It is phenomenal and it tastes so good, it ought to be illegal. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. With me today here at the Voice of American Law Enforcement is a real interesting guy who's helping not only law enforcement but veterans all over the country. His name is John Wharton. 
And I'll, uh, he is the uh, director of an amazing organization called the Life Aid Research Institute. It is uh, touching a lot of lives. I'll read a little bit about his background. He's a nationally recognized leader of the movement to improve suicide prevention and help veterans and first responders affected by post-traumatic stress disorder. He is also uh, helping those affected by TBI, MST, and other injuries. John Worden is the president and founder of Project Hero. Uh, he's also founded and was president of the Fitness Challenge Foundation, which was a genesis of Ride to Recovery, founded in 2008 in Project Hero. Uh, he is, uh, he's been, been known to ride a bicycle once or twice in his life, and I, I think he was, uh, I think he was, uh, trying out for the Olympics, if I remember correctly. And uh, Life Aid is the name of his organization, and they're amazing. John, thanks so much for being on uh, the uh, Voice of American Law Enforcement. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it being on today. My, my pleasure. So let's talk about this now. First of all, your background. Talk a little bit about that and why you created this organization. So I was a professional cyclist and uh, ran a professional cycling team starting in the early 90s um, through the early 2000s. When I retired, I got started into doing some kids fitness programming. And then I was approached by the Palo Alto VA uh, suicide prevention program about starting a group uh, adaptive cycling program for their suicide prevention program as a way to get guys out and 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 uh back in the game of life so i met with them uh had an idea and uh, took the concept through the va soon after got contacted by walter reed and you know all the guys that were coming back by the plane load all the amputees and they were really interested in the program we did an event in 2008 where we started at walter reed and finished at the coca-cola 600 nascar race and it just took off from there. I mean, it was a life-changing experience for everybody that participated. And uh, we include the families because um, you know, oftentimes with wounded officers or wounded veterans, the primary caregiver is the spouse. And so it's really important to keep those family units together. And uh, they also deal with a lot of stress. And and so uh, it's just been a successful program. And, and uh, we try to take, you know, peer support, uh, technology, functional medicine, and community activation as a way to bring guys together. And it's, it's you know, we've been doing it for 12 years now. And uh, my brother is a L.A. City battalion chief, uh, first responder, started out as a paramedic. So first responders, you know, police and firefighters, EMTs, doctors, nurses, you know, they deal a lot. The suicide rates in those communities is extremely high. It goes unreported because there's not a federal government agency that oversees them. And so uh, something has to be done. You know, we have to create uh, a private sort of VA program for for police and first responders, especially right now, because uh, they're under attack. That's you. You've uh, you couldn't be more timely with what we're talking about. Um, but you personally, um you know, you don't have a background in law enforcement or uh, as, uh, you know, the military. So why are you so passionate about about this uh, about this topic? 
Well, I did officer candidate school for the Marine Corps when I was in college. And like I said, my brother's a first responder. And I've seen what, what service to the city does to him. I've seen the, the wear and tear on his body and how it affects him mentally. Uh, I have a lot of friends who are police officers, and I've had some friends commit suicide. And so it really does motivate me because if there's something that I can do that I am an expert in that, that, that can save someone's life, um, I, I want to be the guy that can do that because, you know, a lot of times there's no one there to help these guys and, you know, no one's stepping up. So if it's something that I can do, um, I feel, you know, I feel a moral obligation to do it. You know, I, I like that word moral obligation. I think it's, I think it's a, it's a term that isn't used enough in, in our current state of, uh, current state of affairs, but um, let's talk about the organization. Uh, I, 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 want to, I want to tell the, the uh, viewers out there that my organization that I created, the Wounded Blue, uh, which deals with injured and disabled officers, uh, sent two of my, of my team members to an event that, uh, that uh, uh, this organization ran. And I, I, and I want uh, the feedback I got from it was absolutely amazing. So if you would, John, talk about about what your organization does and the strategy that is using to um, to help these first responders and military veterans. So the the foundation of the program is peer support. When you're in the military, you have your buddies. When you're you know on act, active as first responders, you have your, your team, your partner, and it's the guy on your right and the guy on the left, and your life depends on them, and, and their life depends on you, and there's an accountability there. And so when you get injured, you get disconnected from that community and that support network. And I think at the core of our program, what we do is reconnect people. And we do it in a variety of ways. Um, through mental, physical, and emotional rehabilitation. And sometimes you do all three at the same time. And through whether it's group, social, physical activity, which is one of the greatest uh, inventions known to man as far as healing people, uh, the group dynamic, the social capacity, the physical and mental skills, it helps people get out of their comfort zone and, and they're able to achieve something that they probably wouldn't do on their own, but because of the group dynamic and and the camaraderie and the motivation, it helps them break through barriers that they're dealing with. And when you when you when you successfully break through a barrier, especially when you've been struggling, it's it's life changing. When you are you talking about physical barriers? It could be physical, mental, emotional. It, you know, it's different for different people. And you and you know when these when these events, like for example, bend. You know, we had 31 participants who I'd never met before until we all got to bend. And by the end of the first day, we weren't 31 individuals. We were one group, one team. And, you know, that's the experience that you have when you're on active duty, whether it's in the military or as first responders. There's, you know, you're, there's one team. And when you get injured or you, you retire or you have a, an issue, you get disconnected from that team. And so... You know, now now you're part of a team again, and and that feeling of having that peer support network, and then on top of that, when we do the brain imaging 
and all the uh, technology and functional medicine approaches to whatever it is, the underlying injury or, or um, condition that they came to the event with and be able to help people overcome that. I mean, I, I, I urge people to go to our YouTube, Life Aid Research Institute YouTube channel and our TV show that just ran on Discovery is there. And there's two first responders that are featured in the TV show. One is a New York City 9-11 firefighter and the other is a North Carolina state trooper, which is someone that's known to some of the people in the Wounded Blue organization. He's done some some things with you. And he was basically a walking zombie and his wife was pulling her hair out trying to figure out how to get him better. And it wasn't until he got involved in our program and now he's walking and talking and you, know, you can see his progress in the TV show and see how, how just how remarkable it is. I urge, I urge all the viewers to tune into this program. How do they see it again? It's on our YouTube TV channel, uh, Life Aid Research Institute. If you just search YouTube, and it should come up. It's called Life Aid, A Story of Hope. You could probably search under that link as well. And it's posted on all of our Life Aid social media, Facebook accounts, and all that stuff. It is an amazing story. Um, so you, you talk, let's talk about, you were referring to Bend, Oregon. And uh, it's important that the viewers understand this, that you do retreats in various places uh, around the country. Talk about that retreat and why uh, this is such an essential part of your program. So we try to do these retreats about once a month. And they're, they're really critical in terms of getting people back in the game of life. Like I was saying, it's, um, it's uh, you know, these guys are a, a lot, of, especially in the COVID era, everyone's isolated. And isolation yeah. is not your best friend when you're dealing with PTSD or TBIs and the effects like depression, anxiety, sleep disorders, chronic pain, uh, you know, et cetera. And uh, when you come to these retreats, like you said, you get reconnected and it's that physical social networking that helps people, you know, deal with whatever it is, because everybody comes with something. And uh, our next retreat is going to be this November, November 6th to the 12th in Los Angeles. And we're doing a bunch of stuff with the Dodgers. And uh, uh, it's going to be quite remarkable. We'll have our brain mapping going on. Because um, when you're dealing with brain injury, it's really under, it's, we don't really treat brain injury the way we do normal injury. Like if you break your arm and you go to the doctor, the first thing they do is take an x-ray and look and see, hey, what's wrong with your arm? Well, with your brain, what's wrong with your brain? Well, tell me, oh, well, my brain hurts. But they don't actually take any imaging of it to understand what it is that's going wrong. You know, where's the, where's the injury? Where's the damage? Where are the wires being crossed? And so what we try to do is we try to put people back together again and and do it in a way that will actually be life-sustaining. Um, one of our big uh, achievements is that 62% of our program participants reduce or eliminate their prescription drug use. Wow, that's, that is a massive number. Um, if you would, talk about brain mapping, because that's not a term that most people are familiar with, and it's, it's a pretty interesting uh, topic. Yeah, and, and the technology is still emerging there, which is one of the great things. So things that we think about what we would like to do in the future, hopefully in a year or two, uh, we'll actually be able to do. But essentially, there's, there's three different types of brain imaging that we work with. One is QEEG. 
that's the one we do at our events. It's easy, it's mobile, and it gives you a really good indicator of what's going on. Do you have a hot brain, a cool brain? Where, where are the wires crossed? Um, and it gives you an image. Another one that we use is fMRI. Everybody knows what an MRI is. And fMRI is a functional scanning of your, of your brain. It's a little harder to do because not as many places do it, but it, it, it gives you a little more three-dimensional imaging than does the QEG. And then the last one we do is a SPECT scan, which is a nuclear imaging, which provides two different types of injury, or two type, different types of imaging, rather. One is you can see blood flow in the brain and understand where blood flow might be restricted or has, has an injury. And the other is brain activity. So you can see uh, where in the brain depression or anxiety um, or activity lies. And depending on where, where it is in your brain helps you determine the types of treatments that'll be effective for that type of brain injury. And we've used all kinds of variety of things, obviously, Diet, and nutrition, exercise are the keys, but uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, infrared sauna treatments, um, neurofeedback. Um, there, there's quite a few technologies that are out there that help heal your brain, and we're, we're going to be releasing our our study results here in the next couple weeks of a study that we've been doing working on for about a year, and looking at uh, brain imaging and how you can measure effectiveness of treatment using brain imaging and we're hoping to do more studies on the actual modalities and try to really understand which modalities work for which types of conditions so that we can better understand how to treat these guys with traumatic brain injury and TBIs. When you're talking about um, the modalities of, um, of brain mapping, um, is this something that is recognized by the medical community as, as a, um, uh, a, a, a way to, to find treatment for certain conditions? Yeah, so QEEG or fMRI or SPECT scan, almost all hospitals in America do those treatments, and they do it for different things. What we're doing is taking this technology and adapting it and advancing it into mental health treatments and how you can actually heal the brain using the this technology or, and other technologies um, so it's really a, a, a new way to use existing technology to better uh, improve the human condition and a lot of the work that we're doing is very pioneering because it hasn't really been done before i don't know if anyone really thought of the approach but uh, myself and our team of doctors kind of got together and decided there's a, there's a better path forward because normally, like if you have a mental health condition, you'll go to a psychiatrist, you'll sit on a couch, lay on a couch, tell them all the things you're doing. Hey, you're depressed. And they'll give you a bunch of pills and antidepressants. And then those antidepressants will cause side effects. And then you'll need sleep medication or you'll need some other kind of medication. And before you know it, you're on eight, nine 12 prescription drugs right and, and you're a walk you're a walking zombie well you come to our program and you'll go from eight nine 12 prescription drugs to maybe one or two or zero and you'll feel better you're, you'll be healthier 
And, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that can sustain you because prescription drugs is not a lifestyle that can last for the rest of your life, especially if you're 40 or 50 years old now. Exactly. So um, how do you're you're a, a 501c3 charitable organization. How, how do you uh, how do you f get funded? Well, just just like the wounded blue, we we rely on the grace and goodness of the American people. And, you know, we try to get people to donate at our website, lifeaidhope.org, lifeaidhope.org. And, you know, we have some corporate partners like Cerner, which is a great partner. They do the electronic health records for the DOD and VA, which is really great because at the end of the day, uh, data analytics and how you can use predictive modeling, especially in telehealth and um, functional medicine is going to be a big thing in the next few years here in this country. I think one of the things that will be a lasting effect of COVID will be the functional medicine and, and how data analytics and telehealth because you saw a lot of advancements because people couldn't go to the doctor's offices because of COVID. So um, there'll be a lot that'll come out here, I think, in the next year or so that'll really advance healthcare and make it easily accessible and, and less costly than, than it is right now. Where can, uh, where can people go to understand more about your organization and reach out in case they want to uh, participate in one of the retreats or one of your other educational uh, uh, seminars. Yeah, we would love people to sign up, uh, you know, especially wounded police officers that are part of the Wounded Blue organization or are watching this right now. Go to lifeaidhope.org and there's an event tab and it'll have a registration for the event in November. And uh, we would love to have you. Uh, we anticipate a really good turnout. Uh, you know, there's a lot of positive momentum right now because of the event in Bend and how just how impactful it was. We had 55 total participants. And like I said, 31 of those were brand new. So one of the one of the great things is when people come to these events and it's life changing, everybody knows someone else who's struggling and uh, um, they bring them along. So, you know, you know, it's that old expression, you know, you you tell a friend and then they tell a friend and then they so on yeah. and so on and so on. And then before you know it, you got people coming out the door like I, like we always talk about Randy you know finding people to help is not the problem yeah amen to that well John this is uh, John Worden of lifeaidhope.org uh, John thanks so much I know I know your crazy schedule uh, and I really <laughs> want to like thank yours. <laughs> you for, <laughs> for taking the time to come on to uh, our show today and talk about the important work that you're doing and how you are changing people's lives Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to working with the Wounded Blue going forward. And there's a lot of guys we'll be able to help. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thank you. One of the most important things that you can do as either a, a law enforcement officer or someone who supports law enforcement is to help injured and disabled officers. How? By simply going to this website www.thewoundedblue.org thewoundedblue.org and why should you do that well first of all because i founded the organization do you need any more than that really so this organization provides tremendous assistance and support 
to officers who've been injured either physically or emotionally in the line of duty. Uh, we have a phenomenal documentary film. If you go to Amazon.com and look at uh, The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. Also on uh, YouTube, if you go to our YouTube channel, Wounded Blue TV, check out our series, The Voices of the Blue. You want to do everything you can to help these men and women who've sacrificed so much for their communities. Go to www.thewoundedblue.org. End of Watch with Randy Sutton. Each week on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, we uh, pay homage to the men and women of the profession who have made the ultimate sacrifice, given their lives in the line of duty during the previous week. Police Officer Sean Peak of the Bridgeton Police Department in New Jersey. Police Officer Sean Peak died several hours after attempting to rescue a suspect who jumped into the Cohennessy River uh, near the Washington Street Bridge at about 1.30 a.m. He and other officers had responded to the Bridgeton Fire Department EMT satellite station after a woman was observed damaging an ambulance. Officer Peak observed the suspect run into the woods near the bridge and then either fall or jump into the river. Officer Peak entered the river in an attempt to rescue the woman but came distressed due to his equipment. The woman was able to swim to the opposite side of the river while other officers assisted Officer Peak out of the water. They took the woman into custody. She was uh, eventually charged, but Officer Peak was treated at a local hospital and released to go home, but he passed away earlier. Uh, excuse me, a little bit later. Police Officer Sean Peak, Bridgeton Police Department, New Jersey. Uh, end of watch, Sunday, September 6, 2020. Investigator Luis Mario Herrera of the Lincoln Police Department in Nebraska. Investigator Mary Herrera succumbed to a gunshot wound sustained on August 26, 2020, when he and other members of the Metro Area Task Force served in a rest warrant at a home in the area of N33rd Street and Vine Street. As officers approached the home, two subjects in, inside, including a juvenile homicide suspect, fled from the house. The juvenile opened fire striking investigator Herrera in the chest. He was transported to a local hospital before being transferred to the Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. He succumbed to his wound on September 7, 2020. The subject who shot him was taken into custody. Investigator Herrera had served with the Lincoln Police Department for 23 years. Investigator Luis Mario Herrera, Lincoln Police Department, Nebraska. End of watch, Monday, September 7, 2020. Captain Stanley Curtis Elrod of the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Captain Stan Elrod was struck and killed by a drunk driver while jogging while on duty as part of his department's wellness program. He was jogging along Hunt Road when a vehicle crossed over the center line and struck him. The driver of the vehicle was arrested and charged with first degree vehicular homicide, drunk driving, failure to maintain a lane, etc. He was also charged with having a firearm. Captain Elrod served with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources for 27 years, recognized as Game Warden of the Year in 1999. Captain Stanley Curtis Elrod, Georgia Department of Natural Resources, end of watch, Thursday, September 3rd, 2020. All of these officers gave their lives in the line of duty. May they rest in peace.
I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, here on the America Out Loud Network with your host, Randy Sutton. A couple things. If you want to contact me, go to Facebook, the voice of American law enforcement. On Twitter, I'm at LT Randy Sutton. I look forward to hearing from you. And remember to support the men and women of the law enforcement profession by going to www.thewoundedblue.org and help any way you can. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.